This panel is supported by Quest Diagnostics. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. Uh, I'm just really excited because we have a super duper esteemed panel today. So I'm really excited for the discussion that's going to take place. Uh, so I'm going to start from left, my left to right. Uh, we have Dr. Lisa Oye. She is the professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Texas Children's Hospital, where she specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of infectious diseases during pregnancy. She also serves as chairwoman of the Texas's the Texas Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Task Force, which is studying pregnancy-related deaths and makes policy recommendations. We then have Marcia Jones, co-founder and executive director of the FIA Center, which focuses on reproductive health access for black women. She is a member of the Texas Equal Access Fund Board of Directors and serves on several national boards. And she's also a steering member of the National Women AIDS Coalition and co-chair of the Texas Black Women Initiative's Dallas team. We then have Cami Jeffrey, head of the Women's Health and Family Planning Association of Texan. Texas, an organization that has a network of 28 agencies and 94 clinic sites throughout the state. She has served with nonprofit and governmental organizations at the state and national level. And most recently, she served in the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. And then, last but not least, have Representative Donna Howard. She is representing the House District 448 since 2006 and serves as chairwoman of the Calendars Committee and the House Appropriations <coughs> Subcommittee on Budget Transparency and Reform. Uh, she also serves on the Appropriations Subcommittee on Article 3, which handles education funding. And she's also worked as a critical care nurse at Brackenridge and Seton Hospitals, and served as Austin's first hospital-based patient education coordinator. Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. So this will be about 60 minutes. We're going to have about 15 to 20 minutes-ish of questions, Q&A, so there are microphones, both sides of the room uh, and also if you want to tweet we have our hashtag tripfest17 so figured I would start off with a softball question at least I think it's a softball question we had a very robust regular session and special session it was very um, enlightening in its own way uh, and we were back two times so based on the regular session and the special session for all the panelists, how would you grade the legislature on what they did on maternal mortality and why? Start with you, Dr. Olier. Great, thank you. Um, from my perspective, one of the most important things that the legislature could do was to extend the duration of the task force so that the task force could continue to do a detailed review of maternal death cases so that we can understand the specific causes, understand the problems that we have with systems of care, and then using that, be able to make recommendations about the right interventions to put into place to reduce maternal mortality. So from that standpoint, in accomplishing what I think was the most important thing, yes, they did that. Were there other opportunities? Absolutely. What grade would you give? Oh, great. Um, <laughs> gosh. That's why she avoided the question. Yeah, I, well, I thought that was very <laughs> gracefully done. <It> was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm going to go with a B because they did accomplish what I thought was most important, but there were missed opportunities. So, um, from my perspective, mm -hmm. um, 
I actually don't think that they did very well. Um, <laughs> I really don't, because um, it took them um, having to have a special session to um, address, uh, to get those wins that we got. And had it not been for a special session, we would not have gotten them. So they had ample opportunity to do this work within the uh, regular session. Um, they did not prioritize this work. Uh, and they did not look at how harmful it would have been for, uh, the, for the work not to have moved forward. So I, I really don't think that they did the greatest job in the world. And I, and I sit here um, giving voice to black women. That, that's why I'm sitting here. Um, my organization do our work unapologetically black. And it's very important that that happens. And so uh, when, when looking at how devastating uh, maternal mortality is in this state, but definitely how uh, devastating it is for the most marginalized of women who happen to be black women, I just don't think that they put the effort into it that they should have. And when you have to be forced, then I can't give you uh, a good grade. <laughs> you know, I, I just can't. And so I would probably give them a D because they could have done better. Okay. Tammy. Yeah, well, I sit um, as a family planning provider, and so I do want to acknowledge that funding was level funded for women's health services in this session, which I think was um, really great for our network of providers and for other providers providing this care. Um, but we did see, uh, we support the work that got through for maternal mortality, but the opportunity to look at disparities um, that was missed yes. during the regular session was very frustrating. Um, I also think that improving access to contraception did not get through. So Representative Howard, the past few sessions has brought up the issue that yes. there is not contraceptive coverage in CHIP, and that includes women who are accessing prenatal care in the CHIP perinatal program. Um, so I believe that that was another missed opportunity to make sure that women are getting access to family planning services in that critical interconception period. Um, so I would definitely give a a B minus, uh, to be nice, and it's probably more of a, a I, I think it was more average, um, that we got some wins, but we most definitely missed several opportunities to improve access to care, um, and to even just research the issues um, that are driving this high rate of maternal mortality in this state. Well, I think uh, I'm kind of setting a low bar for us uh, to, to give any kind of credit. Uh, session before this one, my staff and I deemed it as missed opportunities, misplaced priorities. This last one, we said uh, it could have been worse, which is kind of hard to imagine on some of the things that happened, how it actually could have been worse. But indeed, uh, there are some who, it seems, uh, are steadfast in not doing anything to help address women's health care and get so diverted on other things uh, that they don't have any bandwidth left to deal with, with these issues. Um, and it was very frustrating in both the regular and the special sessions uh, to uh, have multiple opportunities from multiple legislators, Democrat and Republican, right. uh, that could have addressed some of the issues that are impacting the healthcare of women in this state. Uh, and yet we couldn't oftentimes even get a hearing on some of this legislation. So we definitely could have done much more to address what's going on. Uh, my biggest concern has been access as well. And I know that Dr. Ollier's uh, committee has actually come out with that as being one of their number one recommendations. First on the list, it's yes. one of many recommendations that access is a, has a huge part to play <laughs> in what happens with morbidity and mortality. And yet, uh, we have not expanded Medicaid. We have uh, continued to revamp the women's health programs so that it's 
it's confusing at best right. to people as to where they can go. Um, and then on a personal level, I had legislation to extend the Women's Health Advisory Committee, which I was able to get through in the previous session to monitor the consolidation of women's health services to make sure that we were getting it right. We've revamped it so many times, you know, let's get it right. Let's make sure that people are getting access and, and achieve at least partial, partially the recommendation out of, out of the committee and um, got it through the, the House and, and the Senate. Uh, the governor vetoed it. And he vetoed it based on the fact that it had already done its job. You know, wrap up, it's done. Well, we don't have the numbers on what's really going on with these programs. The job is not done. And he cut off uh, one of the very groups that we had in place to ensure that there was adequate access. Uh, so uh, I don't even know what grade I'd give us. I mean, I, I, it's, it's pitiful. <laughs> so I'm going to go with an N slash A for you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, every time I've talked to legislators, Republican or Democrats, it has always been, this is a bipartisan issue. We care about women. We don't want moms dying. We love life. I mean, why is this, why is there such a, why is this such a challenge to get something substantially done on this topic? You asking me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you want to answer? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, certainly it is a bipartisan mm -hmm. issue. And mm -hmm. as I said, there, were, there was legislation proposed uh, from both Republicans and Democrats to, to try to address this. Um, you know, all I can say is I, there's a couple of things. One is obviously resources. And you've got to prioritize in a system that has very limited resources. Um, most of which is because it's been self-inflicted that we have limited resources. We have set policies in place to decrease revenue streams coming into our state, and then we complain because we don't have enough to pay for things. Well, yeah, we've kind of created that. So resources is always a huge part of anything that we do. Um, and, and there's still, uh, unfortunately, a whole lot of politically driven decisions made at the, at the Capitol, duh, you know, but I mean, the <laughs> fact is that rather than basing policy decisions on evidence, basing it on the input from stakeholders about what we could really do. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are unfortunately guided by uh, ideologically driven political groups that have scorecards. And they're more, they're more inclined to, to recognize those than they are uh, the stakeholders here. And you know, I think that um, this is an issue that people could get around and say we were doing something for women's health care because obviously women are dying and we don't want that to happen. Uh, why we couldn't have done more, why we couldn't have addressed uh, the access issues and the contraceptive issues, I think that's more uh, politically driven and uh, a very unfortunate way to, to run a government and a very unfortunate way to come up with public policy. Okay. So since the session ended and then it began again, then ended again, uh, I have heard people talk to me via interviews on Twitter, not that that should count, uh, about, you know, what is a task force really going to do? You know, we're extending this task force for what? This is not helping women with access issues. This is not talking about disparities. I mean, how is this actually going to really help women or prevent women from dying after giving birth? So, Dr. Ollier, I'm wondering if you can just tell the audience what is the task force working on right now? and I want you to say you just fight for your existence, but you already did that. But you know, can you just talk about what your guys are trying to do right now? Absolutely. So 
the role of the task force, what we're charged with is reviewing maternal mortality and doing detailed case reviews. So why does that matter, right? We have vital statistics data. So there are numbers that we can calculate from death certificates. There's causes of death on those death certificates. Doesn't that just provide you all the information you need? And the answer is no. It doesn't provide us all the information that we need. So we need to be able to identify um, with more granularity, right? So when a woman, unfortunately, bleeds to death at the time of a delivery, we need to understand what that really means. What opportunities were there to provide care for her, maybe in a different place, or in a different way, or in, in, at a different time that would have been able to save her life? And that's what the task force does. So the task force can identify very specific information and identify opportunities for prevention. And then the next step is taking those, that information and implementing solutions to prevent. Now, one of the states that is a great example is the state of California. And part of the information, uh, part of what we're requested to do in the new legislation is to look at other states for best, best practices and identify interventions that can be implemented. One of the things that California has is a perinatal collaborative. And the way that the maternal mortality review and the collaborative in California work together is that the maternal mortality review comes up with the data and the collaborative implements the recommendations. We can do the very same thing here in Texas. We have the maternal mortality review producing the reports with the data, and then we have a collaborative that can then implement evidence-based solutions that have, for example, been implemented in other states. There's a nationwide program called AIM, Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health, and they have health and safety bundles that have been implemented in states nationwide. There are more than 12 states right now, including California, including Florida, very similar states that are great comparisons for us in Texas, and they are implementing these bundles and reducing complications and death for women who have high blood pressure at the time of delivery and for women who are bleeding at the time of delivery. So by implementing these safety bundles, they're reducing the rates of complications and death. Our collaborative here in Texas can choose to do the same thing. I think another opportunity that, another opportunity that we have is with the Texas Medical Association. The Texas Medical Association has called for a forum on maternal mortality, which will happen actually at the end of this month. And at that forum, we'll be discussing, again, looking at the specific data, looking at the recommendations that the task force made, including improving access to care, and making recommendations, finding concrete projects, programs, processes that we can implement now to make a change so that we can see those numbers fall. So you guys are doing a lot. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. We should be. We, we have to be, yeah. right? I mean, we have a huge problem. We have, a, we have to implement solutions, and we have to implement them in a timely fashion to really make a difference. So Marcia, you kind of touched on this just a teensy wincy bit, but I want to go back to it just, just for a moment. <laughs> now, the AFIA Center was running around the Capitol throughout regular session and special session, trying to get something done on maternal mortality. Right. For you as a black woman, as an advocate, what can you talk to us about what was that like for you to try and get lawmakers' attention on black women dying after childbirth? 
So um, we we have a limited time here, so. <laughs> yeah, because we could go on and on with that. But it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating doing this because you walk into this space understanding that because of the women that you are lifting up, there, there's no, um, we're not prioritized in any kind of way. Um, there's no sense of urgency when we're talking about black women's lives. And so um, it's kind of like you, you, you walk in feeling like, um, like you have to walk in fighting, you know, like I have to walk in fighting, like there's not ever going to be an opportunity for me to have just a sit down, comfortable conversation where we can talk about all of the things that can happen with, um, with the uh, task force. And no, we have, to, we have to walk in the room putting race at the very beginning of every conversation that we have. We have to put gender at the beginning of every conversation that we have. And we have to put class at the beginning of every conversation that we have. And so that's not always uh, a comfortable conversation to have in a state like Texas when you're talking about black women. And so it was very complicated. It was very frustrating. Um, there was not a day that we didn't leave that we were not frustrated just like to what end. Um, and then there are days that you feel like, uh, it's like, should I keep doing this? But then you look in the mirror and you know you have to keep doing it, right? And so um, the, um, the, so the uneasiness are people's, are people being so quick are to not want to bring race into a conversation because people want to say everything is race, race, race. It is, it's just frustrating because it is race, race, race. Um, it is, I mean, I, like, I see the same thing when I do HIV work. You know, we, we have all these great plans on how we can end HIV and how we can do all this, but we never take into consideration the lived experiences of these women who are most impacted by HIV or who are most impacted by things like uh, maternal mortality. So it's great to have this, this, um, this in place. It's great. It's great. But how are the women that we're going to serve going to enter that system? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen when they enter that system? How will they enter that system? Will they enter that system where they have historically entered these systems? Where because they're black or because they're any other woman of color, they're not going to get the same services? There's not going to be a reasonable service uh, applied to these women? Will there be equity? Will there be equality? How will this look? So the conversation for us is never just uh, extend this, uh, extend the maternal mortality task force. No, it is prioritizing these women who are most impacted, prioritizing black women. Like we act like we are afraid in this country to say that our lives mean something. Like I'm sick and tired of it. Like, you know, and so it's even like almost having a Black Lives Matter conversation when you walk into these uh, people's office and they expect us to walk in that way. So they've already put up this whole uh, thing, because they're going to come in, you know, like, like she's black, she's going to be angry. Yeah, I'm going to be angry. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be, because you've given us reason to be, and I'm no longer going to apologize for the fact that I, can't that I am a black woman who's angry about what's happening to black women. I'm angry about what's happening to women in this country. I am. And, um, I am most definitely angry about how easy it is for politicians or legislators to throw our lives under the bus every freaking day and absolutely nothing happens. And so that, those are the things that we are confronted when we do this work. So if it was just as easy as being welcome, it's very few offices welcome us in. 
And I'm not saying all the legislators down there are bad. When we were not able to be there as much as we were this past legislative session, and that's all because we didn't have the money. So I'd like for people to know that too. A lot of times advocacy and grassroots organizing is great, but when you don't have any money, it really don't go anywhere. I mean, you do what you do, but money makes a difference. Not that we have a lot now, so if you want to donate, we can still take it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we were able to expand our capacity to be, uh, to be able to be in more spaces than at, at one time. So all of the legislators down there were not bad. I'm not saying that, and there are legislators who work hard to put stuff through. And I'm not saying because uh, Representative Donna is sitting here. That's not why I'm saying it. I would say it if she wasn't here. I've always talked about her before I even knew her. I talked about her. And so, but, I'm, but the work is just so few. It's so few who welcome us with open arms like this. So it just, I don't want to take away from that. But it's just, it's really a complicated work. But you have to do it. Yes. And it has to be done. And you have to do it understanding that you have absolutely nothing to lose. So if we lift up black women, we have nothing to lose. We have everything to gain by lifting up black women. And we're not going to step away from that. Even if the uh, folks' doors that we're going to go in are not going to welcome us, that's OK. Uh, one of the things in our end that I taught when I first started doing this work, and I was working with women who, are, who were living with HIV, and a lot of these women, um, they they never ever had an opportunity where people told them that they could be great or that they could accomplish anything or they could be somewhere. And so we started to do, uh, and these were the women that we work with, not all women who live with HIV feel that way. And we were doing advocacy work and so we had planned our visits and some of the visits didn't get planned, right? We didn't get to talk to somebody. So we get there and people are standing outside the door and I'm like, why are you not going in making your visits? And he said, well, because we didn't get them scheduled. I said, well, it doesn't matter. This is your house. Go in. You own this house. They don't own this house. They're working for you. They're living, they're renting. This is your space. Go in and say what you have to say. You don't have to have an appointment to go into this office. And so from that point, these women came back and they were so empowered and they were like, so they were telling other women, we went and we didn't have an appointment and we talked to them, you know, because, and, and sometimes they'll say this when they're talking, it was like, because that's our house. You know, both of those houses is ours. The house on the hill and the governor's mansion too, those are our houses. And so it's important, and uh, so that's just a little thing, mm -hmm. but it's important when people yeah. can feel that way and they can walk into those spaces. So it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very frustrating, mm -hmm. but it's worth it. Every time one woman feel like this, or every time one woman know that I can now fight to make sure that we are not dying, we're not gonna die, and that black women's lives are gonna be important, and that black women's lives do matter, and that black women's lives are, are of most importance. And so it, it, it's worth it. it. I don't care if, if, if they, you know, they're there for a short period of time. I'm here for a lifetime. <laughs> Thank you. So. Marsha, you touched on something that I kind of want to open up a bit. And actually, I want Cami to jump in on this. You talked about access to care. Uh, and Cami, you have a network of providers around Texas who are doing great work on family planning services. And I believe in your report, you all said you had a 56% increase in services provided to women, men, and teens, which is an amazing jump. Um, but where are the gaps to care still? And who is falling through those gaps? Yeah, so um, as Representative Howard noted, um, our women's health services in the state is still very difficult to navigate even after improving it time and time again. So my network of providers receives specific federal funding for family planning services through the Title X grant. Um, and we are able to fund 100 clinics throughout this state and they are able to serve 180,000 
women each year out of 1.8 million women in need of publicly funded family planning services in this state. It is a small fraction of what we were able to do. Our providers also participate in the Medicaid program. They participate in Healthy Texas Women if they are eligible to do so. Some of our providers are prohibited. Um, they participate in the Family Planning Program, which is similar to the Title X program and operated with state funding. Um, and they serve people prenatally in both Medicaid and CHIP perinatal. So one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest populations that we serve are undocumented women and men and teens who have no other access points to services because our federal funding allows that. Um, and so one issue that we see specifically in this state is that undocumented women who receive services through the CHIP perinatal program, which is designed to provide services to the fetus um, before birth, so technically the woman is not enrolled, it's the unborn child option, is what it's called here in Texas. Okay. Um, They're able to get limited prenatal services and then they deliver on emergency Medicaid. Only the delivery is covered through emergency Medicaid. Um, so they do not have family planning options in either CHIP perinatal or emergency Medicaid. So many of these women, if they're not coming to one of our 100 clinics through this great state of Texas, are not going to have the opportunity to get their family planning services in that interconception period. And what we see are rapid repeat pregnancies because they've lost access to care and they don't have a choice to prevent the next pregnancy. Um, so Representative Howard has championed expanding contraceptive access in CHIP over the last few sessions, and that is one of the things that I really wish could get some bipartisan work. Um, because and it has with Sarah. It has with Sarah Davis, absolutely, <laughs> Representative Davis also. Um, but we, we barely got hearings on those things. Yeah. And so um, what, what we see there is there is this, politi this politicization of family planning care in this state not wanting minors to get access to contraception, also not understanding that CHIP isn't just for children. It is for women who are giving birth and need services. Um, so the biggest gap for me in this state um, are undocumented women who are enrolled in CHIP perinate, delivering on emergency Medicaid. But we also see, again, we've tried to get this moving in the legislature, that women only have services in Medicaid when they're pregnant and 60 days postpartum. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the biggest, and, and Dr. Ollier and the task force addressed this in their report, we get women who have, they, they have hypertension and diabetes and they are not getting access to preventive and primary care before they're pregnant. So we are getting women with some conditions that make them high risk, right. which lead to poor, uh, poor outcomes for them and for their children. And then they're out within 60 days. And they get, in CHIP perinate, you get two postpartum visits. We know that the people who are delivering in Medicaid have so many barriers to care, transportation, childcare, no sick leave, they're returning to work. And what we see is that they're not getting the services they need. And so many things are thrown at you in your postpartum appointment, family planning is not prioritized. Right. And we're not talking about family planning in the prenatal period either to get people set up to make that choice after they've delivered. Right. Um, so for me, the undocumented community in this state is the most at risk of not having access to family planning. They're the most at risk for having a rapid repeat pregnancy that they may have wanted to prevent if they were able to get a family planning option in place in right. that postpartum period. Um, but we have a long way to go for everyone in this state to receive access to these services. So I'm gonna ask you a question. I want the whole group to jump in. 
is Texas making the right investments in women's health? Because every time I'm here, I'm watching the floor. I'm, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just the moderator. Uh, <laughs> you know, I keep hearing we are spending more money than ever on women's health programs. Uh, you know, I've heard a couple times during hearings, you know, if these women are not accessing services, we don't know what to tell them. You know, the services are there. We're spending the money. So, Cami, you, know, you can start and then, you know, we'll sure. kind of go back down the line. Are we making the right investments when we spend money on, mental, on women's health? I will say that I am, I'm very thankful that the legislature continued to fund these programs. But what we have not seen yet, all we have seen so far are the number of women enrolled in these programs. So we know that a... About 217,000 women were enrolled last fiscal year in these programs. What we have not seen yet are data on who is being served, who's actually accessing these services, and which services are being provided. So it's really difficult for me to answer a question about how we are investing these funds when I don't know who is being served and which services they are getting. Um, so I think that's a question. If you ask me again next summer, hopefully we'll have the data. I hear early 2018, we mm -hmm. might have something on what's happening in the Healthy Texas Women and the Family Planning programs. Um, I know that in my network, those providers who were able to get some new funds, because for a number of years, our providers were unable to participate in the family planning program, and, and this year they were able to participate. Um, those providers are specialty family planning providers, and so we in, when we invest funding in providers like those in my network, we absolutely see increases in access because they know how to deliver these services well. Um, the state has funded some organizations who had no history in family planning. Um, some organizations, you know, the, the tiering is still in place where um, we want to give money to federally qualified health centers and public health departments first and specialized family planning providers last. That is a remnant of the days when the state was seeking to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, I have all of those providers in my network and I can say that you can absolutely provide family planning services in all of those settings, but it is gonna be a lot more difficult to integrate family planning services into a federally qualified health center than it is to just deliver them at a specialty family planning clinic. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think that there, it's very complex. Mm -hmm. The funding streams are complex. They're being delivered um, in a way that we haven't really seen everything we need to see to make solid judgments. Um, I'm hopeful that we will be able to have a more robust conversation about that next trip bus with a mm -hmm. lot of data. Okay. Well, um, I know that uh, Dr. Olier's uh, task force um, mentions that there is some t there's a timing issue here in terms of family planning cuts <clears throat> in the budget and some of what they've found, but there's not necessarily a causative relationship. That being said, uh, we do know that we had a, a very successful program that was being implemented here prior to the 2011 budget cuts that was so successful that the Legislative Budget Board recommended expanding it because not only was it doing a good job of addressing the health care needs of women, it was also saving the taxpayers in the costs, the significantly elevated costs of, of the unplanned pregnancy versus preventing that unplanned pregnancy. And by the way, let me just say, there's also a reason why the Centers for Disease Control say that family planning is one of the most significant health events of the past century, and that's because it saves lives. Spacing your children mm -hmm. saves lives, the mother's lives and the baby's lives. So it was a, it was a very good program that it was working, but the ideology came in 
trying to get Planned Parenthood out of the provider service, even though I think the number I keep remembering is 41% of the clients were being seen by Planned Parenthood, whatever. They were seeing a substantial number of the, of the eligible women. And so it was just, this tiered system came in, the cuts in the funding, and guess what happened? Not only did Planned Parenthood uh, get eliminated from the system, but a whole bunch of other programs did too. So we shredded the safety net. And legislators came back the next time, and some of us were working behind the scenes to make sure they got this information, uh, both Republican and Democratic uh, legislators. Uh, they realized that, oh my gosh, we didn't mean for that one to close down. We didn't mean for you to lose money. And all of a sudden, there were like 70, 80 clinics that closed down across the state, and women without services. So quickly, yeah, put some money back in to your original question. Put money back in. Yeah, well, we're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. We're going to get more providers. We're not going to use Planned Parenthood. We're going to get more providers, though, and we'll put this money back in. Well, you don't just tear something down and build it right back up. And so we have gotten a significant number of new providers over time, but that hasn't addressed capacity. Just because you have a provider, if you have uh, more providers, but they see fewer patients, you haven't addressed the capacity issue. So the numbers we have that we're seeing now, we do have more enrollment because there's some automatic enrollment issues here, which is good. We want people to be automatically enrolled in a program that will, will treat them. But we are also seeing that there are fewer claims for uh, contraceptives, significantly fewer, and we don't have the real numbers yet. Even though this was implemented, this latest iteration was implemented last summer, we still don't know how many people are being served. And so the, the, the money, yes, we put more money in, but we're seeing fewer people. Mm -hmm. And that makes no fiscally conservative sense to me. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't make any good public policy sense to me that we would be doing that. So mm -hmm. money's an issue, mm -hmm. we've put more money in, but we're seeing fewer clients. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Before we get to these heal. Uh, start thinking of your questions for what you want to ask. Remember, there are two mics here, so start thinking of your questions. So after we take these two answers, then I want to get some Q&A going. All right. So I meant to say that, well, we're not service providers, uh, and maybe some of these numbers are not the numbers that we look at, but when it comes to spending money, first of all, when you're spending money in a crisis, you're not spending money good. So when money is not well planned, it's not going to be spent well. But secondly, um, if if the service, we're not spending money that guarantees women have full autonomy, full bodily autonomy, that they can make decisions to get whatever type of reproductive health services that they need, including abortions, then we are not spending the money wisely. It, we are not. You know, and so I don't believe that we get to pick and choose what these services look like for the women who need them. So we know that birth control is great, women need, all of these things need to happen, but women also need to have that choice, they need to have that right, they need to be able to uh, receive a service that's legal and medically safe. You know, so if that's not happening, we're not spending the money wisely, we're just not. Um, and so <clears throat> I think that, that we have, that conversation needs to happen more than it's happening. Um, that, that's a conversation that happens across the board. And then as it relates to birth control and things of these, uh, and these kinds of conversations, 
uh, one of the things that we that's not always mentioned when we're talking about uh, birth control and being able to space your children make good healthy sense, but it also makes good economic sense because it's been shown that for women of color, and this is black women and, and also brown women, um, the more unintended pregnancies that they have, the more it increases generational poverty. Yeah. And so are we intentionally trying to keep a particular or a certain group of folk poor? And so we have to even look at it that way. So not just healthy sense, but it also makes good economic sense. It means dollars. It, means it changes everything. And not only do it change, uh, make, create uh, generational poverty, but it also uh, it feeds into uh, the criminal justice system for these same people. So it, it seems like it's a grand design to me. You know, that this, these things are designed to be this way and to play out that way. So when we have these conversations about uh, what happens when our legislators, uh, be, when they are reckless, when they're reckless with their power and they're reckless with the kinds of policy that they uh, put forth and they have you thinking that it's only about saving women's lives and abortions, no, it's larger than that. It's larger than that. It's, it's larger than just women not getting pregnant or having those babies. We're talking poverty, you know, and, and for me, and, and I'm right. through, I will always sit here. Always know that when you invite me to sit on the table, sit on the space, I'm going to always talk about race. I'm going to always talk about gender. I'm going to always talk about class. I will always talk about it because that is, that's, the, that's what we're living in right now. We are at the intersection of race, gender, and class. And if we're not taught having these conversations intersectionally, we will never, ever be uh, where we need to be. And so, no, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think they did a good job, and I don't think they spent the money right. Dr. Jolie, very quickly. Very quickly. So the task force made three medical or clinical recommendations, if you will. One of those recommendations was access to care. Women need access to care. I strongly believe in the value of preventive services. Let's put our investment in on the front end. Prevent the complications rather than paying larger sums of money to care for complications on the back end. Right. It makes economic sense and it's simply the right thing to do for people. Yes. Invest in preventive care. This is good. Right, Start here, and then we'll go here. So back or, is this on? Okay. My name is Allison Thompson. I'm a professor of nursing at Austin Community College and a former labor and delivery nurse at Brackenridge before they closed down. Uh, one, a couple things. Uh, comprehensive sex ed. I have not heard. I don't know. If you, I was a little late. I don't know if that came up. But I once had a patient, 16-year-old, who came in in labor, and one of our questions was, "Are you are you going to breastfeed?" She did not know what that was. I had to explain to her what her breasts were for <coughs> to feed a baby. So obviously, you're talking with horrific lack of education just on, uh, on the part of humans not knowing how their bodies work and what they're for. Um, another thing, I don't, Dr. Oye, uh, I don't know if you have nurses on your task force. We do, absolutely. Okay. And in the, in the special session, there was a, an addition of another nurse onto the task force. Okay, that makes me feel good because we are you know, having been at Brackenridge, which had an extremely vulnerable population. We were at the front lines. We're the ones um, that doctor does a delivery, and we we're the ones that find the postpartum. Hemorrhage. Specifically, it was an L and D nurse. Do you have a question? To the, yeah. Uh, I just. Or, or, I mean, I know you the wanted sex to. Educate, I mean, just right. like the. What do we do about this? We got to get back into the public schools, get rid of this abstinence education, representative power. Like <laughs> 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 I'm looking at David Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> 
I yeah, it's, it's obviously, yeah. you're correct. It's been a huge issue for years mm -hmm. in this yeah. state. And we still have a whole lot of school districts mm -hmm. that are doing abstinence only and uh, are not getting the kind of information to the students that they need to. But it's way even beyond that. Mm -hmm. Some legislation that I've had over and over again uh, for using comp ed dollars, which is for our high risk students, money that's already there. I'm not even suggesting increasing the money though I'd like to. Use the same pot of money, but allow the school districts to use that to help support their parenting teens, mm -hmm. to provide childcare so they can actually get in their seats, finish high school, get a job or go to higher ed and take care of their family. Mm -hmm. But I can't even get that to go all the way through. Uh, and one of the reasons that was given to me at times by some of my colleagues is because why, do, why would we reward these girls for making bad choices? Yeah. Their bad you know, choices, their babies. I mean, we, we have huge challenges mm -hmm. at the Capitol. I'd say another legislative challenge that you and, and Chair Davis um, did champion was trying to get teens able to consent oh. to their own contraception mm -hmm. right. in the postpartum period. In Texas, you have to have parental consent to get contraception unless you're coming to our clinics because our federal protections are still there now. Um, and you can deliver your child, you can make healthcare decisions on behalf of your child, but and you cannot not consent not to your own contraception. Isn't that incredible? Mm -hmm. Thank That's you incredible. ladies for your work. I'm really appreciative Great. of what you're all doing. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Thanks Sir? a lot, that was my question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, but, uh, the, I'm David Wiley from Texas State University. I'm on the board of directors for the Texas Campaign to Prevent Teen Pregnancy. And that was one of our issues is getting um, minors who are, who are uh, parents the uh, ability to consent for their own care. It actually got to a hearing this time. So am I in a halcyon day that things are getting better? Or is it because our lobbyists would talk to conservative Republicans who thought this was the dumbest thing ever, that you couldn't consent to your own care. And so the, the, the needle was moved a little bit. So is, is that the answer or is in, increasing Title X funding, which removes the parental consent? Uh, is, is that a better way to do it? Oh, or well, both, or all the above? Or? I mean, Title X funding is completely at risk at the federal level now. Yeah. So unfortunately, yeah. I'm not sure that we'll have a win on that. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the best approach is here. I mean, there's a lot of obstacles still. Um, you know, one of the things, as you know, we were trying to also do was to get some pilot programs in for LARCs. Yeah. to be used with uh, teens what, to, to try to replicate some of what they've done in Colorado where they significantly reduced the unplanned pregnancies among teens. Why would we not do something that cuts it in, it cut it in half? And for my colleagues that are very concerned and focus more on abortion than on women's health care and uh, pregnancies and contraceptives, it also decreased abortions. So allowing uh, access to these teens to a long-acting reversible contraceptive could have huge benefits but we don't seem to be able to get anywhere with well, that especially when texas leads the nation in repeat births right. among there you go. Yes. as well mm -hmm. oh, thank you thank you the answer okay. so wait, 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 it's wait, 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 yeah i was gonna say it we're kind of talking about after the fact because we need to go back to the whole thing around comprehensive sex education comprehensive sex education so there's got to be more advocacy i think the answer a lot of these answers are the community, people in the state have got to become upset about this. Uh, people who are voting have to become upset about this. We've got to find a way to get this information out here. But we, we've got to really work harder for comprehensive sex education because we want to put something in place before, when, before girls get pregnant. 
That's what we want to do. It's great to do this after they get pregnant, but we want to do it before they get pregnant because if we can do it before they get pregnant, then we don't have to even have the, com the conversation around uh, I mean, some of this stuff. I mean, it's going to always have to happen. It, it, it's ridiculous that you can have a baby but cannot get contraceptives acceptance the next time. That just, that's ridiculous. But really, comprehensive sex education have to be in our schools, and so we have to continue to uh, work to move that legislation that keeps going forward to make that happen so that we can stop it before it starts. And then when we talk about LORICs and things of that nature, that, that is a community conversation that has to happen because we just can't say, it's, it's, LORICs and all of these things is not a one-size-fit-all. Um, you have to feel, see how different people in the community feel about this. And I know currently um, uh, women, uh, those of us who do this work using a reproductive justice framework, and for black women, we have serious concerns about LORICs. And so LORIC just may not be the answer for our community. And so a lot of times we do this stuff without having community conversations on some level and inviting all people into the community, not just a certain segment of the community, so that we can make better decisions when we go and take this stuff to legislator or when we take this stuff to our communities. But LORICs is good, I guess, if they're good, but there need to be a conversation before that they're, they're had. And then also looking at the historical context of how some of this stuff impact different communities and also comprehensive sex education. Like, period, before all of this happened, comprehensive sex education, it, it's real, it needs to happen. That's it. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you. Um, my name is Stuart Greenfield. I'm a retired state employee who has a lot of time on his hands. Let me go, you know, there was a task force that was created in the 83rd legislative session, okay? And you're continuing that. And I assume when we get to the 86th legislative session, there will be a continuation of the task force, okay? Because a committee never gets anything done, okay? So one of the questions, I, you know, you said you're looking at California, okay? What states have done benchmark work in reducing the black maternal mortality rate. I would assume you can go to the Wonder database at CDC and look at the maternal mortality rates by race, ethnicity, and anything else across the states and see what states have had improvements in the black maternal mortality rate. Have you done that? <clears throat> Um, we have looked at what states are currently implementing. As I mentioned before, there have been some tremendous successes with implementation of safety bundles to promote best practices at the time or near the time of delivery. So there's, there's a couple of ways to look at this problem, right? So we can look at just general medical care. Are women getting healthier or less healthy because of issues like access to care? And when we do things that limit access to care, the overall population of women is less healthy when they enter a pregnancy. And so when we take this pregnancy and we identify the most common complications for African-American women, so we can prioritize those complications, high blood pressure and hemorrhage, and there are safety bundles for both of those things that have been implemented in other states like California and in Florida and have successfully reduced complications for African-American women, for Latina women, for Caucasian women, for those particular complications that disproportionately affect African-American women. But in the aggregate, which states have done better reducing the overall rate? 
California has done an amazing job. And you know, I, I know some of you have heard me speak before and you've seen mm -hmm. the slide that I show. I, I always say a picture is worth a thousand words. If you look at the maternal mortality rate in Texas, it's rising. You look at what's happening in California, it's going the opposite direction. For a while we were tracking together and then we separated. And I think California is a very good example of successful program implementation, again, just like they've had successful program implementation in Florida as well. And I'm looking forward to our TMA forum and to the collaborative actually implementing these programs, again, addressing problems that disproportionately affect African-American women. And I think that you all are also going to need to maybe sit down and talk with, uh, with alliances like the Black Moms Matter Alliance. Because these are, when we're in place, to make sure that when you are get, putting your data together that you are including the, the myriad of things that mm -hmm. happen to uh, cause such an increase in spike in black women. So I think that that would help to sit down with uh, alliances like Black Mamas Matter. So unfortunately, we have to start wrapping it up. I'm sorry, but we'll be here sitting probably for a while based off the number of people. One more question. Okay. I'll make it one quick more. if I can. One more. First of all, I want to say to Cami and to Martha that I am humbled to be in your presence. I appreciate the work you do on behalf of the women of Texas. You too, Representative Howard, what you did on the floor, your impassioned speech. I forward that to everyone I know. I appreciate it. Uh, full disclosure, my name is Stephen Kling. I'm running for Texas Senate against Donna Campbell. And she... And the elephant in the room here that we are not willing to talk about, apparently, is that everything you say makes logical sense. And doctor, I do not mean <laughs> to take anything away from the work that you do, because it is important, but we do not need, just like the gentleman said, we don't need do task force question? after task force studying this problem. We already know what it is. Representative Howard has talked about it. Cammie's talked about it. Sir. What we have it's a small part of the, rep of the Sir, Republican wing. Question? Yeah. Question. I'm, I'm getting there. No, I what we have is zealots. I'm getting there. One more question. What we have is zealots that have taken control of the Senate, and they are not going Sir, to listen. We really need a question. They are not going. I'm getting there. Okay. Please. They are not going to listen to your logic because they think the women that get that are are they are denying this health care that they closed 83 clinics. They think that you're sluts and you don't Respectfully, deserve. Respectfully, sir, they my think panelists that you are do waiting for deserve. questions. We had people who are waiting to ask a question. If you cannot get to your question, I need you to either sit down or let someone else Understood. ask a question. Okay. They think that because you do we, not deserve the health care that you're getting. Okay. We're just going to have to wrap up the question. We're going to wrap up the panel. Thank you so much. Thank you. And my question is, am I right?